And I think women feel more empowered. We're asking more questions and we're being persistent and we're not taking no for an answer. And I think all of those things will allow women to advocate for themselves. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Britt Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. In today's episode, we're chatting with Dr. Kanasha Gwiton. She's an OBGYN and medical director of Natalist, a women's health startup that provides products and resources for fertility and pregnancy. We've been wanting to dedicate an entire episode of our podcast to women's health for a while now, and today's the day. Dr. Gleaton's going to teach us the most important things we need to look out for as women, like hormonal issues and our reproductive health, including some of your most embarrassing questions. All right, the phrase women's health. It could feel like a buzzword, but Ange, what do you think that phrase means? I mean, to me, I feel like first, it just feels like reproductive health, you know, like the types of things you go to your OB for. But I actually feel like as I get older, it just feels like health, like my mental health, my wellness, like my whole being. (laughs) Right. I think like women's health versus men's health basically just means like vagina versus penis, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I feel like it's more holistic than that. I, I was talking to my husband the other day and realized that I hadn't been to my primary care physician in four years because I've been pregnant twice in the last four years. So my OB has sort of been like my my primary care, my bestie, my person I'm checking in with all the time. And I actually miss it. I'm like, wait, I don't want to go to a regular doctor. <laughs> I want to go to a women's doctor. And my kids are like two years older than yours. So I'm having the adverse reaction where like I felt like that for a while. But now mm-hmm. my kids are four and six and I'm like, do I need a regular doctor again? Because I don't feel like anyone's taking care of me. Like I literally, <laughs> my OB is like, you're, you literally haven't been pregnant in four years. Um, so why are you calling me? <laughs> and then I, totally. My primary doctor is like, I haven't seen you in like a decade. So yeah. um, here I am stranded. Uh, no one's taking care of Brit. Wah, wah, wah. I know, I know. <laughs> but do you feel like how you approach your health is like wildly different from your husband? Like, I feel like my husband goes, checks in on his health like once every three years and it's for a very specific thing. Like he needs a new inhaler or, you know, like a very, it's not just a check-in. Um, yeah, I think that maybe this is a gender stereotype, but I'm always like, Ooh, I felt like a little lump somewhere in my cheek. Like, do I have cancer? Should I go get it screened? Like, do I need to go get it checked? Like, oh, my moods have been out of whack lately. Hormonal imbalance? I don't know. Period being weird? Maybe. Like, maybe I should have someone talk to me about this. I don't know. So I just think that women sometimes are a little bit more anxious or interested in their own health and that obviously we have different things like hormones and vaginas that we need to check in on. It's true. I was just going to say that I feel like also with having kids, sometimes I'm like, I probably just need more sleeper food because <laughs> that's like the solution to whenever they're cranky or seem like hormonally imbalanced. I'm um, like, or water. I'm the world's <laughs> yeah, worst water, water drinker water. <laughs> as I like literally sit here with my coffee. Um, <laughs> the other day I was super dizzy all day. And Ange, I was like, Ange, I'm really dizzy. Uh, am I pregnant? 
And she was like, maybe. And she's like, but also, have you like had water today? And I was like, great call. That's definitely it. I'm dehydrated. Too much coffee, girlfriend. Okay, but you freaked me out thinking maybe I was pregnant. So anyway, <laughs> well, I think it's time to get the actual medical expert here to join the conversation. We are thrilled to have Dr. Kanasha Gleaton joining us to teach us something new about women's health. Welcome, Dr. Gleaton. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so we'd love to start just by hearing more about your background. What made you want to get into medicine and women's health specifically? Well, you know, I really have always migrated towards like health related issues. Even from a child, I was interested in trying to be a candy striper at my local hospital. And so it was always just very rewarding for me to see patients get better and overcome illness. And so I kept that throughout like growing up and I thought I was bound to be a pediatrician and I did that rotation and hated every moment of it. But that was fortunately followed by my OB rotation. And I really just felt like I was hanging out with my girlfriends. Like every day we just chat about things other than health, like Oprah and all those things. And I just really fell in love with being able to talk to gals all day long, you know? Currently, I function as the medical director at Natalis, um, and we are a company that is geared to providing resources and products for women who are trying to get pregnant and having issues with fertility. And we really focus on making that journey more beautiful and empowering women to embrace that journey. How do you feel like we as women need to be taking care of our bodies differently than men? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we as women, especially moms, I'm glad to hear that you guys are both moms, but we really focus on so many other people than ourselves, you know, and I see this day in and day out where women have put themselves on the back burner. They haven't even gone to the hairstylist and done basic hygiene things, other and, um, you know, health related things just kind of fall on the back burner and we just care for our families. And that's what we're taught that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be great moms and great wives and great coworkers and professionals and bosses. And we really just put ourselves and self-care on the back burner. And so I think we have to be more appropriate in recognizing that we have to be intentional about our health. And if we are not, then it will not just happen by default. And I think that's what I see a lot of patients just fail to do. So I'm about to turn 35. I just said it. Um, and <laughs> it's okay, Britt. It's okay. I'm getting nervous. All right. I'm getting nervous that I'm feeling older. I am going to have to start worrying about things like mammograms and colonoscopies and all these tests that I need to start worrying about as I get to 40. So how do we need to be taking care of our bodies different as we get older as women? You know, like when we're in our teens and we're in our 20s and early 30s, we can do and eat and do whatever, pretty much, you know, and not really have any significant detriment to our health. But as we are getting older, we really have to shift our focus and be preventative in terms of our health care. And I think that's the largest um, change in paradigm, I should say, that I see. So what types of things do we need to be doing, though? Like, what should I be thinking about at age 35? I think like making sure that you're kind of being proactive about your health and keeping up with your screenings. Like you mentioned a mammogram, we start those at 40, but also your annual pap smears and getting your blood pressure and your um, weight um, and your diabetes screening done at least on a one to two year basis. I think there are a lot of preventative things that women just don't know about because we feel great, you know, and so if we don't feel bad, we don't think to kind of pay attention to that. Call me a hypochondriac, but I feel like with breast cancer being such a big deal, like 
is there any harm in getting a mammogram at 35? Will they even let me do that? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> I just, just want to make sure I'm good. <laughs> yes. Go get your mammogram. There is nothing wrong with getting a mammogram at 35. Now, insurance probably won't cover it annually until 40, but there is something called a baseline mammogram. And I think that's a great thing to do. All right. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll do it on my birthday. All right. So you've got that on your list. That's like on your 35, 35 bucket list. So that's good. And just going back to something you said earlier, you know, with both of us being moms, I remember when I took my second daughter to her, one of her first pediatrician appointment. And I remember the doctor said to me, mom's health is the most important health in the house. So like mental health, physical health. And it really struck me. And I keep coming back to it because I'm like, yes, this is for me and my own longevity. But it's like it's the health of the family. Absolutely. (laughs) No pressure. And (laughs) I know I was like, okay, whatever you tell me to do, pediatrician. (laughs) But research has shown that women often struggle to get properly diagnosed and treated in comparison to men. Why do you think that is? No, there are lots of reasons, to be honest, but I do think that it stems from just the medical history in our country and not just the country, I think the world. When you look at medical research, a lot of it was done on male subjects, even in the animal models, you know, and so I think that's put us really at a um, disadvantage in diagnosing women's health. But there are a couple of other things too, you know, like, of course, women are often deemed to be more um, emotionally driven. And so oftentimes people are more likely to say, you're just depressed. No, you're not having pain there. And to think it's just straight and anxiety. How do you think this is changing over time? And are you optimistic that women might become properly diagnosed and treated? So I really feel that I think this is uh, widely known and with so many other social injustice that is going on currently, I think that women's health is really going to improve over the next decade or a couple of years, actually. And I think women feel more empowered, like we're asking more questions and we're being persistent and we're not taking no for an answer and we're getting second opinions. And I think all of those things will allow women to advocate for themselves because we have to be empowered to, you know, find our own diagnosis because we know when something's wrong in our bodies, you know, but I think sometimes we feel that we have to prove it to others like this is not right. And so, yeah, I definitely think that we're going in the right direction. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Dr. Gleaton, now I want you to walk us through some of the most common areas women struggle to get diagnosed and treated and teach us how we can be more proactive as patients when we're talking to our own doctors. Okay, first up, hormonal issues. When I think of problems with hormones, I think of trouble sleeping, PMS, of course, mood swings. So from a doctor's perspective, what are hormonal issues and how do you go about diagnosing a problem? 
So most symptoms, when um, we think of hormonal imbalances, we think of people being really tired, not being able to sleep, having excessive weight gain, or even sometimes weight loss, um, feeling like you're foggy, can't concentrate, can't focus, feeling irritable, um, all those sorts of things, even feeling lightheaded, those sorts of things can make you think like, okay, your hormones might be off. And so when you feel like that, then definitely you need to go to your provider and talk to them about it and have a conversation, get some baseline lab testing done. And I will tell you most often when we check hormones, hormones and women um, less than 45, they're typically normal, but it's a good thing to rule out just to kind of make sure that, you know, things are working well in that department. If you're on birth control, does it throw off all of these tests? It absolutely does. And patients have a hard time understanding that, but birth control is basically artificial simulation. Basically, it's just simulating what um, the the manufacturers want it to simulate pretty much. So there's nothing natural about that. So if we test your estrogen levels, then it's going to be what the amount that's in the pill. So definitely it's um, not accurate to get hormone level testing when you're on birth control. Well, see, so this is what happened. I took a hormone test a couple months ago and all my levels were so weird. And it was like, you might have like a hormonal imbalance, but you're on birth (laughs) control. So we don't know. And so I went off birth control And now my husband's like, what? We're not having a baby right now. And I'm like, no, I just want to like take a test and make sure all my stuff is like at the right level. And so how many months does it take before I can go get tested now that I've been off birth control for two months? Yeah, usually we say six to eight weeks, then it should definitely be um, your natural body's hormone state for sure. Let's talk about reproductive health. Um, You've been super open about your own infertility struggles. Can you share a little bit more about your own experience with our listeners? Yes. So, you know, as an OBGYN, I really delayed childbearing because I wanted to, you know, get established in practice and finish residency. And so when we did stop contraception and didn't get pregnant in the first year, I immediately knew like, "Uh oh, this is the diagnosis of infertility. What do I do? And so I wasn't really that concerned about it because, you know, I see pregnant women all the time. I know it was happening for everyone else. It was bound to happen for me. However, after about three years and we still hadn't had our first child, it was a significant issue. And so really it was exacerbated by recurrent miscarriages. And so I really had a longer journey than what I anticipated, but I feel like I learned so much in my own process. And so, yeah, I'm really passionate about that when I'm counseling patients. Is there an average amount of time it takes to get pregnant these days? Is that even a thing? Yeah. Well, we just know that 90% of couples will be pregnant within the first year. And so if you fall within the 10% who are not pregnant in the first year, there could be something wrong. It does not mean there is something wrong, but it means that we should probably initiate a conversation and a workup and evaluation to see if there's something that we could do to help you get pregnant faster. So a year is the magic time frame if you're under Um, 35. If you are over 35, then that drops to six months because we do know that fertility issues are more common um, and more prominent in 35-year-old and older patients. What about the 10%? So let's say that, okay, you're in the 10%. It's been a year. It's not working. What are your success rates of having a baby? Well, that's really relative and subjective just because it depends on what is found. So at um, if you're in the 10% at a year, we do recommend doing a workup and that involves three things. One, you want to get the semen analysis performed to ensure that the sperm have good quality and quantity and their mobility is adequate. The second thing is you'd want to check the fallopian tubes because the sperm and the eggs have to meet and that's their only transit system. So the fallopian tubes allow that fertilization to happen. And then the third t- thing you'd like to do is check the egg quality 
quality. So sperm quality, egg quality, and then the transit system. Got it. And do you recommend that women get, you know, fertil- regular fertility tests just to see like uh, what their ACH levels are or how many eggs they have at any given time just to sort of feel confident in understanding that they have options as they're getting older? Yeah, I usually tell patients, like, if you plan to act on the result of the test, then get the test. If you are not, then it just does not behoove or benefit you to know these numbers and stress yourself out about it, especially if there's nothing that you can change. But sometimes patients are in a situation where they are choosing and opting to delay childbearing. And if that is the case, then absolutely, if you are making a cognitive decision to delay childbearing, then that information can be really useful. The one thing I will say about that testing is that it does indicate the success of um, fertility treatments. It does not always indicate your successful chances of spontaneously conceiving. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. Ooh, I never knew that. Mm. Yeah, that's new info. Um, What do you feel like are the most important things women need to look out for when it comes to their reproductive health? So... I would say, you know, before they're even considering trying to get pregnant, when they're getting trying to get pregnant and then after, because I feel like reproductive health is such a big term. Mm -hmm. So I would love for you to break it down in terms of those life stages. Right. So I think before you're even thinking about childbearing and getting pregnant, a menstrual cycle is a vital sign. So when you're getting their weight and their blood pressure and their pulse and their temperature, ask about the menstrual cycle. It tells us a lot about how their hormones are regulated and how their um, metabolism is going. And so I think as just a young woman who is not really even thinking about childbearing, making sure that you're having regular menstrual cycles and there's not a lot of variation in that. And if there is, and you're skipping cycles all the time, it would be um, helpful to talk with your OBGYN and to get a diagnosis because there could be something that could be better treated or even prevented when you think about it. And the next thing I think about is in um, terms of like having lots of crampy cycles or what we call dysmenorrhea in the medical community. Many women just think, okay, this is just the normal part of my cycle. I have to have cramps and I have to like be down for two days because my period is on. And sometimes that can indicate something like endometriosis. And for such a diagnosis that is so often overlooked and misdiagnosed, it can be prevented in terms of um, preventing, uh, I guess, uh, abnormal anatomy that could affect your future fertility. So endometriosis is one of those that I'm passionate about helping people understand that you need to get an early diagnosis because this could affect the trajectory of your childbearing years. When you're trying to get pregnant, I think the focus shifts, right? So we are taught all of our lives to prevent pregnancy. So we're on birth control and we're trying to prevent pregnancy. It really is a shift in our focus to start thinking about, okay, now I need to capture that 24 hours of the month when I can get pregnant. And so I think we have to be intentional about that. And a lot of times women are not having sex as often as they should and you at least need to have sex at least twice a week to get pregnant. But I think like you just have to empower yourself and kind of know your body when you're ovulating, when you're cycling, try not to stress, having sex and just kind of making it fun, to be honest. And then my question, which is my personal follow-up, is what about when you're done being pregnant? So, <laughs> so I'm good. Uh-huh. I've got my two kids. Uh-huh. But I'll just give you like my quick medical history in terms of reproductive health, which is um, I have maybe have PCOS. It's a little bit TBD because I had it um, when I was trying to get pregnant with my first child and then ended up getting pregnant, had the kid. And then when I went to explore the second kid, I was like, okay, now this is going to take a year again. I need to be prepared, all this PCOS stuff. And then I went and got my my ovaries scanned, you know, and they're like, you don't have PCOS. It's gone. (laughs) 
Okay, cool. Um, so anyway, I, I was able to get pregnant easily, move, had the kid, we're good. But now I finally got my period back a few months ago and it's super irregular. Like I get them, you know, sometimes every four weeks, sometimes every eight. And I guess, you know, I don't really mind the irregularity, but is there anything that, you know, I should be worried about even though I'm not trying to get pregnant? Yeah, so I think getting pregnant and trying to conceive is definitely one reason why you want to have normal cycles, but there are certainly others too. So if you're skipping cycles and you're skipping them two to three months at a time, you certainly put yourself at risk for a precancerous condition called hyperplasia. And so we really, (laughs) I'm laughing at your face. We really get concerned about that because, you know, that's a big deal. And a lot of folks don't know that. And they're like, I'm happy I'm not having a period. Don't make me have one, right? And that's how I would exactly well. However, (laughs) it's important that your body has a cycle unless you're on a medication that suppresses that. So if you have an IUD or birth control continuously, I do. Okay. So if you have an IUD, then that's a little different because that is causing you not to have your cycles. They're all over the place. So that's another artificial simulation, right? So that's not your body's natural state. So if you have an IUD, then your body's going to do whatever, whenever, and you just have to accept it and be happy and hope that you don't have periods. Interesting. Okay. I want an IUD. Man, I'm sold. (laughs) Wait, but I have a question on skipping periods. So I've like up until two months ago was on the ring for a really long time. And I heard that you could just swap out the ring for a new ring and then not have your period. And that was okay. Is that true? Absolutely. You can train your body, you know, well, some folks can train their bodies, but you can train your body to not need to have a cycle. So you just basically take one ring out, put in another one and wait for you to start having bleeding. And some people can train their bodies to have like three or four months without a period. And that's pretty great. That's okay though. Like I'm not going to like mess up my reproductive future. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Actually, it's great. And it's okay because that's an artificial, again, it's an artificial simulated environment. So it's not what your body is doing. It's what you're doing with the hormone. So you can kind of do what you want. Even in delaying your cycle, if you have a vacation coming up, you can put a ring in for an extra two months or whatever. I'm so I remember doing that back when I was on the pill, like just like skipping the week, like good old Uh orthotricycline back in those days. Wait, I'm so I'm so pissed right now. I like messed up so many vacations. I could have been (laughs) enjoying more because I didn't do this. So, oh, my gosh, listeners. Hack, life hack. Speaking of one last personal question, (laughs) (laughs) I get my personal question. So let's talk about boobs again, because here's the thing. I was talking about mammograms earlier because, you know, I really think it's important to do self exams and I'm constantly like laying in bed, touching my boobs. (laughs) The problem is I don't really have boobs. Um, So I feel like I feel a lump, but maybe it's a vein. Um, and maybe it's just like, there's no mass in there. And, and so I, then I start to like freak myself out, but it really, I don't, it's not like hard. Like what does a lump feel like? What should I be watching out for? Yeah. So I bet that's a vein. <laughs> I'm sure. But I think that when we're feeling for uh, breast lumps or bumps or nodules, we're feeling for something that is an isolated mass. So it feels round and it's circumscribed and it's hard typically, or it can be soft, but it still feels like an entity. So it's not going to feel long or ropey. Um, If you're feeling something long and ropey, it's probably like a vessel, like you said, or one of your milk ducts, or it could be a rib. If you're really thin, often women mistake their ribs for like masses in their breasts. Um, But yeah, nodule is going to be pretty... It's usually pretty prominent unless it's just really small. But um, if you ever have questions, just have your OBGYN take a feel. 
Okay. Well, thank you. And by the way, can I still go to my OBGYN? Is there a time limit after you have a baby that you can't go back? <laughs> no, because GYNs, we, we like to see you every year and we like to do your pap smears and your vaginal and pelvic exams and your breast exams. So once a year, check in. Oh, I thought pap smears, the rule changed to like once every three to five years. I'm so glad you brought this up because so many people have this misconception. So the rule did change for pap smears. So you should only get those every three to five years. So if your doctor's still telling you that you need an annual yearly pap smear, that's all wrong and outdated. However, you still need your well woman visit. So the well woman visit consists of a breast exam as well as a pelvic exam. So we're filling for your uterus and your ovaries and looking at your vagina and actually having someone look at your cervix. So the guidelines state that if the cervix looks abnormal, then you still need a pap smear. So the only way to know if it looks abnormal is to have someone take a look. So if your primary care physician or provider, family doctor is not doing those sorts of womanly exams, then you need to still see an OBGYN at least once a year. Okay. So I'm basically three years overdue for my well woman exam. Well, I'm definitely going to have them feel my boobs. So there's that. All right, Dr. Gleaton, before you go, we have a series on Britain Co. called Asking for a Friend, where people can get their most embarrassing questions answered. You know, the questions we're all wondering the answers to, but are too afraid to ask. So we'd love to have you answer a few medical questions that we've received from our listeners. Are you game? Of course. All right, and we can pepper back and forth. I will start. We're talking yeast infections. <laughs> my favorite topic. Can your <laughs> diet cause yeast infections? So there is indeterminate data out there to um, determine if that's the case. However, we do know that yeast loves a sugary environment. So if you have like diabetes or you're eating high content sugar things, then definitely you're going to probably see more yeast infections. Um, but they're usually pretty easy to cure and treat. But definitely if you have a, um, a state where your sugar levels are really high, that's going to show in your vaginal secretions and you can have higher incidence of yeast infections. Ooh. I've never had a yeast infection. Uh -huh. Have you, Ange? Oh. I have. Okay. I have. It's not it's not really something to be cheerful about, <laughs> but I have. <laughs> Congratulations, Ange. <laughs> um, okay, so from our list one of our listeners, I feel like I'm so gassy when I'm on my period. Is this normal? What causes it? Yes, it is normal. So basically when we're on our cycles, we release all sorts of hormones, but one of them is prostaglandins and progesterone. So prostaglandins basically kind of makes everything a little more irritable. So the same hormone that makes you have your uterine cramps and your period cramps can also make your bowels a little irritable. So sometimes people notice diarrhea or they're really regular when they're on their periods, whereas they're usually really constipated. So things just kind of move through a little more quickly. And that's because of the prostaglandin effect. So gas and diarrhea are pretty common. Mm, that's nice. Mm, yeah. More delights. <laughs> We're hitting all the good topics, you guys. All right, switching gears. This listener says, I'm pregnant and I've already noticed major changes in my nipples and boobs. Will they ever go back to normal? <laughs> no promises here. However, folks often notice that they have increased pigmentation in their nipples and their boobs and just their what we call their linea alba, which is the line underneath your belly button. And so often the um, 
the melanin in your skin um, and the melatonin uh, levels, they basically are increased, right? So this, uh, not the melatonin, but the melanin. Um, so this basic increase will cause everything to be a little darker. So that's why you might notice some women have a condition called melasma where the neck, um, around the neck and around the nose is a little darker. So once pregnancy is over, this condition usually corrects itself, right? So it usually goes away, but it's certainly not automatic. And certainly even in the breastfeeding stage, you can continue to see some of the effects of it. So, and okay, this is a random follow-up, but I had read that part of the reason nipples darken is actually maybe so that the babies can find them easier. Is that like a myth or is it real? we don't really know, but however, that's the speculation. So we don't really know why that happens, but that makes sense to me. I guess the babies can't tell (laughs) us. And babies (laughs) babies are a little colorblind when they're born, so I'm not really sure if they can really see it too, but it's a good speculation. I've heard it before. Oh, that's news to me. It makes you feel yeah, bad, yes. right? It's like, okay. But why the black the line? Why the belly line? I never understood the belly line. I mean, yes. that's a whole mystery. I still have it. I don't think it's ever going away. <laughs> what? It's just part of my right. life. Okay. Next listener tells us hot flashes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like, so I'm trying to act. I'm trying to be listeners. Okay. <laughs> hot flashes. I think they've started. What can I do to lessen them? Yeah. So this is a common thing. So it's it's so interesting because we typically think that hot flashes are like genetic in nature, but what we typically tell people is that hot flashes are often um, linked to your diet. A lot of people don't realize that. So there are a lot of dietary components that can exacerbate hot flashes. And so watching, and there's a list of various things like spicy foods, citrusy foods, caffeine, all those sorts of things, too much sugar, um, various things can worsen the hot flashes. But other than that, like watching your diet and of course, um, uh, wearing layered clothes, that's another option to kind of help with that. And then making sure that you always have the option to uh, change the temperature. Um, a lot of those things can help. But again, uh, those the hot flashes just kind of come out of the blue. So often it's related to stress as well. So we try to tell folks to um, stay away from stressful environments, but often they just kind of come out of the blue and you just can't, can't control them and don't really have anything to do for them. If they are becoming a significant issue to where they're interrupting and interfering with your ability to function and perform your professional duties and tasks, we do recommend that you talk to your OBGYN because there are treatments for hot flashes. Like they are um, easily treated and most women get significant reduction and relief from that. Mm. All right. Ending it on a bang with bring us home, Brett Kegels. (laughs) At what age do you need to start exercising your vagina? Now, (laughs) the age is always now, however old you are. But um, you can never go wrong by exercising your vagina, just like you can never go wrong by exercising your abs, right? So you want your vagina, I guess, to be with you and work well for a long time, I should say. And so I think there's never a time that's too early. Um, We do know that, of course, after childbearing is more significant because we've had many uh, or patients have pelvic laxity and they often have a little bit of prolapse of their pelvic floor and pelvic floor dysfunction. So I think having a healthy vagina going into childbearing is probably most important because again, we're trying to focus on prevention and not always treatment and curing. And so just making sure that your, um, your pelvic muscles are tight helps also with urinary control. Like, so you're not leaking urine and so you have better bladder control and all those sorts of things. So there's never a bad reason to start them. What if you had a C-section? Do I still have the pelvic floor issues? 
You probably do, but maybe not as great an extent, just because if you ever were in labor and you were pushing, then you're going to have the same effects as if you deliver the baby. But if you had a scheduled C-section, never went into labor, never had your cervix dilate, um, then you're probably going to have less of that. But we have seen studies where pregnant women in general, just the forces and the weight of pregnancy itself puts women at higher risk to also have like urinary dysfunction and pelvic floor um, laxity and pelvic floor prolapse. Was it awkward that I was doing Kegels the whole time you answered that question? Oh, <laughs> just kidding. Nope. <laughs> okay, oh okay, my okay. Gosh. Oh Dr. Gleaton, thanks for getting a little TMI with us. What is our women's health homework for the week? What's one thing everyone listening to this should do this week? What I would say is take five minutes, like take five minutes and just inventory your life and inventory your health. Like what have I been negligent in doing or where have I practiced just um, just negligence and making sure that you identify those things and come up with a game plan. Like over the next two weeks, I will do this to advance my health in this area. Whether that means I will call my OBGYN and schedule my pap smear. I will call and get my mammogram scheduled. I will get my physical exam with my primary care doctor because I have no idea if I could be a diabetic or what my cholesterol is. Like just do something to advance your health and then not only do that for you, but someone that you love. So call them and advise them to do the same thing. Mm, Well, I'm going to schedule my women's wellness visit because that's long overdue. And what are you going to (laughs) do? I'm going to schedule my well woman visit. Yeah, well woman visit. I love it. I want to be a well woman. Yeah, I think we should all be well women. Dr. Gleaton, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us and giving us such useful information. For those of us who live too far away to be one of your patients, where can they find you and learn more? Yes. So I am um, definitely, we're at natalist.com. I'm the medical director of natalist, but also practice at um, Partners OBGYN. And I'm starting my own practice in February, the Epicenter in Charleston, South Carolina. So I'm super excited to have these multiple roles. Love it. Thank you so much for being here. And here's to more healthy women. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Special shout out to my co-host, Ange, who you can find on Instagram at Angelica Temple. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Christine Swore and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Aaron Kaufman. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next time.